mā whero, mā pango, ka oti ai te mahi. With red and black, the work will be complete. E ngā mana, e ngā reo, e ngā kārangaranga o te motu, nau mai anō ki tēnei hōtaka e kia nei ko te ahikā. Kua o tēnei ko Justin Murray. Welcome back to Te Ahikā here on Radio New Zealand National. I'm Justine Murray. With Mirata Mita, one of the premier indigenous filmmakers backing you up and instilling the belief that you too can be a filmmaker, resulted in Tammy Davis making perhaps one of the most difficult decisions in his professional career. She goes to me, she goes, Tammy, why, why, is, um, why is someone else making your film? And I said, oh, I just thought that would be the best thing. She goes, she goes I, travel around the, I travel around the world encouraging Indigenous people to make bloody short films. And for, if you've written something, then you should direct it yourself. That's what she does. And, um, and I was going, oh. I went, I went oh, OK. Well, I said, oh, well, I've already kind of... She goes, no. Nah. Well, she goes, well, I'm going to encourage you to get it back. And I said, well, how do I do that? She goes, oh, you make a phone call and you say you want it back. And I said, oh, Merata, they're... They were just about to go into production. She goes, so? I went, oh. And made the phone call and, yeah. Want to know what happened next? Stay tuned. Tammy Davis is with Mariah Rakuraku. The year is 1984, three years out from the passing of legislation that would enact the Māori Language Act 1987. In tonight's archival segment, Ngā Taonga Kōrero, the head of Wellington-based Māori Language Board, Ngā Kaifakapumo Itereo, Dr Huirangi Waikere Puru, explains the reasons why Māori language should be officially recognised. Some countries that speak three languages, uh, some have four languages, and cope with them without any great difficulty. So why should we have too much trouble trying to cope with two languages? It's not very much to ask for, but I think it's to recognise the rights of the indigenous language and the indigenous culture, because I believe it's related to the attitude of everyone in the country, in the land. And we'll hear music from Macy Rika and her latest album, Fitzura, in today's show. That's what's coming up this hour in tonight's edition of Te Ahika. As a kid of the 80s, I can attest that growing up in my whānau was like, from time to time, having your own show band in your house. Yes, Dad and the uncles are all guitarists, drummers, pianists, a talent that I'm still trying to learn. So it wasn't surprising that Leon Farekura, who grew up in Huntley with his muso whānau, inspired a career in music. Justin Murray, Radio New Zealand National, here in um, Hastings on a beautiful Friday morning covering uh, the uh, Waitamari Music Awards. I'm here with Leon Farekura. Kia ora, Leon. Morena, kia koe ho. Morena. Um, first of all, Leon, tell me where you were born, raised, your iwi hapu, marae? Sure. I, I was raised in Huntley. And uh, it was a fantastic childhood. There was music all around us, and we had a, you know, the land was our playground, the river was our swimming pool, and um, I guess that's where music first came into my life as a child through kapahaka and church. 
kapahaka and church. And so your whānau, uh, so when you say music was all around you, was it in the house? It was in the house and um, we, we had a, a, I can remember a lot of cousins, were, my mum and dad were whāngai and cousins. And so, you know, I was exposed to wonderful records sitting in the in the record player, like the Stylistics and and the, um, the bebop groups of the 60s and 70s. And then there was the Prince Tuiteka albums and the John Rolls albums and the all of that, which influenced uh, me and and kind of exposed me to singing and music. Wow, fantastic! And so, do you come from a like with my whanau, uh, Dad can play the drums, the guitar, you know, strum on it. Uh, uh, ukulele when he can is that like your whanau multi very much so but when I looked into my whakapapa as I got older and and even um, my komato who some of them I didn't even meet I, I learned through history and through um, the corridor around the marais that it was their house that they would go to now my my parents grew up around a marae in Huntley called Wahi Pa and Wahi Pa was um, uh, where a lot of um, King Koroki used to live and the Māori Queen, the late Tarakinuta Tarangi Kahu. And quite often um, the king would um, head over to my, my great-grandfather's house and that's where the guitars would come out. So even before I arrived <laughs> here, I think music was destined to be a part of my, my life. Mm. So, Leon, um, so uh, as a teenager into adulthood, how did influ- uh, music influence you and how did it shape your life? D- uh, did you study it, for example? Well, by the time I left high school, there was no doubt in my mind it was going to be music. I was crystal clear on that. There was never uh, any other... I didn't see myself in no nine-to-five situation. Uh, it was going to be music, come hook or by crook, uh, be pōhara or you know, be broke or whatever. It was always going to be music. And, and lucky for me, looking back, you know, I was exposed to a pretty good opportunity and, and my first professional job was as a backing vocalist for Billy T. James, and I'm talking 25 years ago now, Uh, and from Billy it just kind of progressed from there, the stage became my university, Mm. and and, um, my classmates became the musicians of Auckland, you know, so I just saw it through different eyes, Um, and and then from there I moved to Australia, from Australia um, there was gigs all over there throughout Asia. I lived three years up in China and worked up on the Hard Rock Cafe circuit. But then by my 30s, I got Moki Moki Faotero. And it was time to come home. So my seeds, um, my dad had passed at this stage. My mum was here and being the mātaumu of my whānau, mm-hmm. my family, I just needed to come home. But it's been wonderful because I've, I've stuck around here. I've managed to... Um, still uh, be visible but these days music to me is it's not just about you know expressing yourself as an artist and because I'm you know I'm, I, I'm not in my early stages of this you know I'm a... I know well some people would have only I mean I came to know of you maybe about 2008 uh, maybe the last five years or so but you've always done music well uh, I primarily made my my, my um, living as, as a singer in the covers band and I did that right. you know and and that still brings me income because of the corporate scene that we have here in New Zealand but um, it, I, I kind of arrived at singer-songwriting late. Um, I was always singing, but I wasn't songwriting. Right. And, so, and um, so here I am today with my second album, as the, and it is a finalist in four categories at the Waiata Māori Music Awards, which happens tonight. Fantastic. Can we just backtrack a little bit, please, Leon, to um, your time spent as a backing vocalist for Billy T. James? Sure. What did Billy T. James teach you? He taught me humility. Above all, he taught me that a, a person can can um, be a star on stage, but then that person also needs to be uh, a person, 
a humble man and that's exactly what he was he was very unassuming when he wasn't on stage he loved to he loved to assimilate he didn't love to be the person that he he knew how to take off the entertainer hat mm. he knew where, where it belonged and he knew where it stayed but beyond that was Billy a father Billy a friend he, he was a brother you know he was an uncle he was our our mentor and um, and Taisha would back me up on this, the ambassador of the Māori Music Awards, as, because we came through that same schooling. Mm. And um, so I, I take all that knowledge. Another influence was Uncle Dalvanius, you know, and the countless, the countless drives around this country and, and the words of wisdom he shared with me and, and, and instilling in me the values of, of hard work in this industry. And it's not, I tell you what, it's not an easy industry. Um, this industry will test your faith to the max. Yeah. But um, if you can over get through the storms of it and, and the challenges um, for the sake of, of being an artist, it can happen. How long were you in Australia for? Well, Australia's been kind to me um, I, because, you know, when you're not in your comfort zone you can and you step out of it. Um, you, Survival mode. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you learn things. You learn... Um, learn to try different things without feeling pressured from your own whānau and, right. and, and, and even to this day sometimes performing in front of your own whānau is the hardest thing to do <laughs> it's because the most nerve-wracking I'd rather perform to a room full of strangers you know it's much easier <laughs> yeah um, but um, I've got to say that Australia had um, you know taught me endurance you speak Sydney was Sydney your home base all or? over I did the Gold Coast I lived in Sydney for um, and, and worked in the Cross and around Sydney um, Perth um, where else over there? Adelaide, Melbourne, a little bit. Wow, fantastic! Um, so the first album, when did that drop? The was first album was two thousand seven. Yeah. Uh, no, was it two thousand seven? Two thousand eight. Um, and that made it here to the awards, and and from that album, I took the male Maori solo artist award in two thousand and nine, um, and. And it opened up some great opportunities, such as um, the New Zealand um, Jazz Festival, which is held annually in Tauranga. Yes, and Easter weekend. there in the Easter weekend. And, and various other opportunities, which led to television, radio and, and, and print. And that's what, what we do. You know, um, uh, uh, to be here means a lot because it, it, it will help me to serve better. It will help me to go back to Waikato and to assist Rangatahi back there and, and the young up-and-coming aspirations of the next generation of singers and musicians that need to come through. Now, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about this side of, of, of it as well because people invested in me when I was young and impressionable. Now I need to give back and carry on that legacy and most of us feel the same, have the same sentiments mm. here. You know, we are one big family and I must say that Waikato is well represented this year at the, um, <laughs> <laughs> at the yes. Waikato Music Awards. I reckon because we've got um, uh, Piata Melbourne who um, helped produce the Kōpai Puro Herangi Pai Huerere which features remade, remixes and renditions of, of her Herini's um, music. Leon Farekura, you've been seen um, in various um, areas within the music world. You were part of a, um, a, a group. Um, tell us about that. The Puggy Quartet yes. um, came about through uh, an opportunity to honour the show bands of, of yesteryear. And the producers of Homai Te Paki Paki, namely Eden Atamepo, uh, who I just love, um, saw, the, saw an opportunity whereby we could do that two songs so 
Um, I gathered some of my friends who um, were One was Tumanako Farrell. Tumanako Farrell, nor Tauranga Moana. And um, another person, Chris Powley, who was also um, part of the Howard Morrison Junior Quartet uh, trio. And then we had Mr. Thomas Dowers, who's a fantastic R&B soul artist in his own right. The four of us have been friends for many years. We worked at the same venues in Auckland, Sky City Casino, and we all had residencies there. And from time to time, we would pair up or work together, yeah. depending what the co-papa was. Yeah. So we um, we saw the potential of that, um, and we plan to um, revisit that project that project, that product uh, in the very near future. Because, yeah, I mean, when you when you talk about an ode to show bands, you did this beautiful rendition. I think it may have been on Good Morning of Till. 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 <gasps> oh. the high marks. Oh. That's like a classic. Shaboom, shaboom. All that stuff. Yeah, so what made you um, tackle uh, particular songs from the show band era and any favourites? We we didn't want to do any we didn't want to do anything that we we're already do, already doing. We didn't want to sound like four guys just who can sing. We needed a we needed a co-papa. We needed a concept. And to being Māori, at several times, all of us grew up with that music. And, and actually, what the market indicated to us was that that music is still very much loved. Mm. People love that harmony. People love that um, uh, that that cheeky banter that sometimes mm. just feels natural that comes to us so we wanted to keep that alive and and some good gigs came of it we were around the country quite busy um performing um under that the, the pucky quartet banner um so my goal and i just saw the brothers last week we had a had a gig in rotorua and we we're going to come back together and make that happen again the album is it chameleon or chameleon? Chameleon. Well, it's a play you know, on the yeah, word. Yeah, because the, the font of the album is like small C-H-A and then a capital. Um, I was trying to be clever. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, was a, it was a way to... to um, two things I want to say about this was it, it's kind of a reflection of, of some advice that I was given earlier in my career, and that advice was, boy, if you can sing, sing it all sing everything you can because the more you, styles you can put your voice to the more opportunities that will come and I've got to say I, I, I heeded to that advice and it has been um, good for me um, now today I, I love singing jazz I love singing reggae, I love singing pop I love singing funk, I love singing mm. rock I love singing classical and trying to um, adapt my voice the voice is the instrument I guess what I want the public to know the most is, is that the voice needs to stay mine and, and and be the source of where these ideas come from. I didn't plan to be a rock singer. I didn't plan to be a pop singer. I just knew I I wanted to be a singer. Didn't want to be in a box. I didn't kind of want to be in a box. And that's why I chose the word chameleon, because a chameleon is about changing changing faces and changing environments to, to suit the situation. What are some of your favourite tracks from Chameleon? Oh, I love the Annie Crummer one. The yeah, well, lucky for me, uh, the beautiful Annie um, um, agreed to um, bless my album with her talents, and so I put the idea to her to to um, to how do I say um, to take a beautiful uh, world Unchained famous melody. song, Unchained Melody, and and put some. Pacific feel in there and some oh. and some Māori feel in there. So the first thing we thought was our language. Let's put our language to that langi, to that melody. 
Um, we both loved that idea. Then we needed some, um, we needed some uh, Pacific, <laughs> Pacific influence, so we got some ukuleles. Yes, in and there. who was playing that? That's Jerome Pare, one of the most. Because uh, I thought it was Annie, because she can play. Annie she? plays too. Yeah. Annie plays everything. Actually, she plays the pal for her dad's band, Papa Willie, um, and she um, and she oh, she, just stunning. So that yes, so Etito's on there. Um, and we plan to take that up into the Pacific. I, I was up in Rarotonga two weeks ago and, oh. and got to play it through all the radio up there. Mind you, it's not a very big island, so <laughs> you know, it's, it's very quick to be, to be heard in, in Rarotonga. Yes. <laughs> um, another song is You're the Reason. Um, I wrote this song. Um, you know, it's, the message is, is, although it's generic, I feel uh, it just comes from a space that I wanted to write a contemporary song and, and um, open up another market maybe mm. so we've just shot a video for that oh, nice. and that's about to be released um another song i wrote was mama and um oh, yeah. you know um when you lose a mother your life changes and and mine certainly did and it's coming up to five years now and i wanted to honor my mother because above all woman um she was the lady who who um who do you who taught me about life who who, who taught me to honor woman who taught me everything I know. And um, so I wanted to sing in honour of her memory. Kalikau he kōrero keitua tuki tērā, Leon Wharekura. Kia ora. Kia ora rāhewa. Kia ora, Leon Wharekura no Tainui Waka. Now to find out more information about Leon Wharekura and his latest album, uh, Chameleon, you can head to our webpage, radioinz.co.nz forward slash teahika. That's T-E-A-H-I-K-A-A. Writer's Block is based in Wellington and is a loosely formed group of Māori, Pacific, Asian and Pākehā writers who, until recently, gathered together under the guidance of writer Hone Koka. If you were to gather an alumni, so to speak of, of members or people who have passed through Writer's Block, the list would be a who's who of writing talent that includes Fitihiriaka, Moira Wairama, Alice Tepunga Somerville, Leilani Unasa. Now, there's the writer-producers, Hone Koka, Media George, Jamie McCaskill, and the writers who are also actors like Kirk Torrance, Fiona Truelove, Jamie McCaskill, and our next guest. Murai Rakuraku is with actor, writer, and director, Tammy Davis. When I was a you know, teenager in South Auckland living in Māngari, um, I used to go, you know, roaming with my mate Anthony and... Um, and we would would see all these, you know, all these tagging and stuff, and and some guys just they wrote es at the end of it. And um, I so asked my mate one time. I said, oh, "Bro, what does that mean?" He says, "Oh, it means Ebony Society." And so I decided to use it for the name of my films because I thought for my film because I thought it was um, insightful and smart. And that's how it opens. There's a young fella who's tagging. Yeah, tagging on the fence, yeah. And then yeah. the cop's running after him, telling him to get back. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. The, and his mate's getting chased by one of the um, security guards from the town centre. Mm. So you've had that story with you. It came about through writer's block. Yeah. How long was the actual process that you used of sitting down and writing it? Oh, it wasn't long at all. Yeah, but um, I think I wrote it in... I don't know, an hour, a couple of hours or something. But then, you know, refining it all the, all the time over the over the five years before we made it, it was always kind of something that sat in the back of my head and 
you know, and then Mita Tamita kind of gave me a bit of advice around a few things, and and um, yeah, by the time we came to make it, it was pretty um, tight. People are more used to seeing you as an actor. Yeah. This was your first foray into writing, and then you directed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, I was approached by a group who wanted to direct it, who wanted to, um, once I'd written it, they said, oh, can we direct it and stuff, and I said yes, and then um, just before they were about to shoot it, I said no, and then it was um, then the film commission kind of uh, didn't trust me for a few years because I pulled the pin and they I owed them a few grand because they'd already spent money, so I just paid them back the money myself personally and then went from there. So... So it just just meant that the film commission kind of the pods were like, oh, Tammy pulled the pin, you know, two weeks before production. Maybe he's um, unreliable. Yeah, yeah, mm, and, and maybe he doesn't deserve to make this film, you know, because well, it's just because you know they were they were executive producers and stuff who had done stuff before. So I'm pretty sure there were you know some complaints made. The industry is very much like that, though, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and I some people can feel pressured to see through projects when they don't necessarily feel comfortable with the creative team that's been yeah. assembled. Some people might look look at that as some kind of professional suicide. Well, oh, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that was the thing. It was, it was um, Mirate just got back from overseas somewhere and she goes to me, she goes, oh, why is... She goes, she goes to me, she goes, tell me, why, why is... Um, why is someone else making your film? And I said, "Oh, I just thought that would be the best thing." She goes, "She goes, I travel around the I travel around the world, encouraging Indigenous people to make bloody short films. And for, if you've written something, then you should direct it yourself. That's what she does." And um, and I was going, "Oh, I went, I went, oh, okay." Well, I said, "Oh, well, I've already kind of." She goes, "No." Nah. Well, she goes, "Well, I'm going to encourage you to get it back." And I said, "Well, how do I do that?" She goes, "Oh, you make a phone call and you say you want it back." And I said, "Oh, meet to the." They were just about to go into production. She goes, so? I went, oh. And made the phone call and, yeah. So at some level, mm. you knew yeah, yeah. that you yep. should be doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you wouldn't have been that easily influenced by... I mean, Mera Thamita was a mm. prolific, yeah. amazing filmmaker. Yeah. But you wouldn't have been that easily influenced, eh? Oh, well, I, w- I wouldn't have been that easy influenced, do you mean? Oh, no. So I, at some I, level, I, you knew that she, some there was I'm, some truth there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did. And so, yeah, I got it back. And, yeah, and I think, you know, that was just... It took time to get it made eventually, but... Um, it was worth it. It was worth it because she she basically said she goes Tammy, it's not going to be your film. It's not. It's not going to be yours. It's you know you you've um, you know you've written it and you should be directing it because it's going to be someone else's perspective of your story. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. Which yeah. means you then had to step up and become yeah. a director. Yeah. So what yeah. sort of skill were you falling back on? I mean, you're not trained as a director. No, I didn't train as a director. I mean, I'd done, I'd done, um, you know, lighting and gripping and art department and all those you so know, little things been and some camera, the scene. some camera things and yeah, stuff like that. But um, but yeah, it was just a matter of then um, convincing the film commission that I could, because every year, every year it would get onto the shortlists of the pods and then, um, but they wouldn't, no one would um, commit to funding it. Yeah, until yeah, until that year when someone who was it was. Um, Aotearo Pakahi and um, and Quentin Hitter 
had Kura, Kura Shorts, which is their company, Kura, or um, Quentin's company anyway, and they funded it. They were like, okay, bro, yeah, let's do it. And then the Film Commission said, oh, um, you need to um, prove that you can direct it. So they said, direct a scene. So we went and made a scene. We picked one of the scenes and we um, shot it as if we shot it for the film. So that, so that we didn't have to shoot it again. And we went and shot it. They loved it. And then we kind of, yeah, put it. So how different is that going from being in front of the camera to behind? I think it's just a matter of kind of knowing your, knowing your sub, knowing the subject matter and stuff. I think, yeah. And if you know it kind of inside and out, it's, it's a little bit easier. Mm. So that's working on your own stuff, and then you yeah. then went on to make another film. Oh yeah, there was another one I wrote and directed. My good Sonny, my older brother, about my brother Sonny, and it was uh, um, that was a lot shorter process. I think you know they just kind of. Film Commission went, oh, you know, you've done something good, let's do something else. So is that really what it's about? It's about proving your, proving your worth? Oh, I don't know. I think it's just, yeah, but, you know, proving it to who? You know, really it's about proving that you can do it yourself, that, you know, you have the kind of ability to do it. There's no one else out there who's really going to, can stop you from doing anything, you know. Just Why is it so expensive? To do what? To make a film. Oh, because, you know, you got to, it's not, it's not that expensive. It's pretty relatively... It's relative to thing to you know, to shooting on digital and stuff these days. I mean, it's a lot cheaper to shoot on digital because it's quicker, cheaper and stuff. But if you want to, you know, if you want to experience making shooting films and stuff, they're still pretty relatively. You know, you can hire a Super 16 camera with 16 mil film and stuff and lenses and everything for a relative, relatively cheap price. So then, what's it like when you're directing somebody else's work? Mm. Uh, oh yeah, so I directed. I think the first plays I did was um, well, I assisted Hone ages ago on a couple of things, but then I did um, Hone Koka um, a few years back on uh, and What Remains when it was Media's first play, and we did it down at the Auckland Art, uh, down at the Wellington Art Gallery. Did it in there. I think it was in the art gallery. Yeah, that was a cool little play. And then um, and then I assisted him on the Prophet, which was his his um, when they went to Hawaii and he directed that himself. And then I've been. And then I moved to Auckland. I've been in Auckland for a while. And then um, last year, I directed a couple of plays. Uh, the Prophet has has one, and Afitapu is tally is tally dramas. And how different is that when you've gone from directing something on stage to directing something that's been filmed mm. for television as it's been performed on stage? Oh yeah, no, that was yeah. It was it was um, hard to try and find the balance. Because you know some performances is, some performances belong on stage and they you know they don't communicate that well and then because I was like I really wanted to do the prophet because I love the prophet I think it's a beautiful beautiful story and um, I love the message behind it as well um, and then they threw Afitapu at me because someone had pulled out one of the directors had pulled out and so I and I didn't know how to do it but it was one of the ones that kind of it was just a real real quick decisions had to be made about how to treat it but. So I just went, oh, well, made, you know, said, oh, well, we'll separate the prison and the, you know, the, the fact from the fantasy art and we'll just kind of, tr I'll treat it that way. But no, it was, um, you know, we just built a set in a studio and filmed for three days and just kind of run bits, stop. It was pretty cutthroat, you know, three days to film, uh, to make an hour and a half drama that they then screened as hour and a half dramas on multi-television. Yeah. 
didn't get, you know, they didn't give us a lot of money. Oh, you know, yeah, it was just, it was just, I just found them very under-resourced, you know, and then they're thinking about doing some more, but, um, yeah, and I can't see that changing as well. If someone was wanting to get into directing for stage, mm. what would be your advice to them? Um, oh, just knock on doors, you know, it's like the cool thing about when I first knew, when I, when Hone first started Tawati, he was doing all these plays, you know, kind of getting them up on, up off the ground and stuff, and so I'd just ring him and just go along, you know, he, I wasn't getting paid, but I'd just go on my days off and... If I had any days off, or if I had, you know, be a couple of weeks up my sleeve, I'd just go and sit in with him, and you know, and, and then every now and then he'd say, "Oh, Timmy, can you, you got any ideas about this, or you got any ideas about that?" And I'd go, "Oh, well, why don't we try this, or why don't we try that?" Mm. So it's always been an interest of yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you don't yeah. necessarily need to go to university or do a course if the interest is there. Yeah, if the interest is there, just go and find someone. You know, if you don't want to. If you don't want to pay thousands of dollars to go and learn from somebody, there's always someone out there who will give you a chance, you know, you just got to... This like Joe last night, he was going to me, oh, bro, you know, I want to make short films and stuff. I said, oh, well, my brother's coming tonight. I'll introduce you. Oh, Sonny, yeah, yeah. I said, bro, I said, man, just go and knock on his door. I'll show you where he works. Give him a call. Say, bro, what are you up to? Do you need a hand? That's all you need to do. You just got to, you know, knock on doors, let people know that you're there, and then um, eventually an opportunity arises. Yeah, it might not happen straight away, but you know, if you, yeah, eventually doors open. Yeah, you just got to kind of be proactive about finding work. Or, now, you know, do you have do. a preference? Do you prefer acting, writing, or directing? I'm good at everything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't want to. You know, you know, I don't like talking about myself, Mariah. But yeah, I'd just like to say that. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean. I'm pretty. What I'm pretty, can I do? Yeah, I'm pretty close <laughs> to brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Nah, uh, no, I, 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 um, yeah, I kind of haven't done any real acting for a while. Like you know, done bits and pieces and got some comedy stuff coming up. But um, yeah, I think I, I really like directing and I really like kind of you know the challenge of it. And um, yeah, I can't wait to do some more. Kia ora ehua, and we can't wait to see what's next. Marae Rakuraku with Tammy Davis no Ngati Rangi, Tiati Honui Apaparangi, a few weeks ago in Wellington, on set of the play he directed, The Prospect, in August. His short film, Ebony Society, went on to garner some pretty major awards at various film festivals around the world, and his second short film, My Older Brother Sonny, has done the same. Critical acclaim, that is. Head to our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash theahika for further details. Earlier this year, Te Tauruwhiri Te Reo Māori, the Māori Language Commission, celebrated 25 years since the establishment of the Māori Language Act that saw not only the creation of the commission, but it enabled the right to speak Te Reo Māori in legal proceedings. In our archival segment, Nga Taonga Kōrero, three years before the enactment of the legislation in 1984, the head of Wellington-based language board, Nga Kaifakapumo Itereo, Dr. Huirangi Waikere Puru, discusses why the Māori language should be made an official language.
Welcome to this week's edition of Hiriringa Kōrero. I'm Carol Greensmith. The Waitangi Tribunal is hearing a claim by Ngākai Whakapumaui the Wellington Māori Language Board, that various laws are in breach of the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi because they fail to make satisfactory provision for the Māori language. In this week's programme, I talk with Board Chairman Huirangi Waikirepuru about the claim. The basis of the claim to the Waitangi Tribunal is to, to give recognition to Māori language in, within the laws of the land. At the present moment, uh, it is only recognised in the Māori Affairs Act, uh, but it's only recognised by or for Māori people or those people who are descendants of Māori. And it doesn't relate to any government administration or responsibility in terms of the use of Māori language in all, uh, all government documents and uh, uh, policy-making uh, and so on. Well, what do you hope to achieve then by having the language recognised? Well, first and foremost is to have it recognised so that it does have equal status with English language. At the present moment, English language is the medium of instructions, instruction, all instruction within schools. Uh, it is the language for broadcasting. And for that reason, we believe that... Uh, responsibility on the part of uh, state departments and institutions to recognise that Māori has an equal place or should have an equal place. And uh, that's why we believe that uh, <clears throat> there is a need to, to uh, have this claim heard so that the rights uh, in relation to the Treaty of Waitangi are understood and recognised. Well, why is the Māori language so important? Well, it is important simply because it expresses the entire mental, spiritual, uh, physical and academic aspirations of the people in exactly English language. Uh, without English language, how can you express the, the thoughts of the people of that particular culture? Uh, I could imagine uh, the uproar if, for instance, there was a decision to make Māori official and it became the language of instruction in all schools uh, and the only broadcasting language, what would happen to a lot of people out in the community, uh, they would see it as, I would believe, that they would see it as an injustice. Uh, and so we see that, we feel that uh, this is the case with Maori language. It has a place, uh, an indigenous right to be a part of everyday life in Aotearoa, uh, in every uh, area of involvement for the people. 
Now, this, uh, this then makes it a responsibility of government and state, according to the Treaty of Waitangi. If nothing results, though, from this claim to the tribunal, then what next? Well, all that is happening in terms of policies that are being implemented and at present under discussion by various educational associations and institutions, that this is a, a tremendous step in the direction of helping the revival of the Maori language. And uh, <clears throat> with the um, with the uh, the initial impetus that was given to a recognition of Maori language by the NZEI New Zealand Educational Institute, um, this was followed up by other educational institutions like uh, PPTA. Uh, for secondary schools and ATTI for technical institutes uh, and uh, many others like Teachers College Association, Teacher Trainees Association, um, Kindergarten Teachers Association and all the educational institutions are looking at their policies and formulating policies whereby a greater awareness and sensitization and even implementation of policies which will bring about a greater use, a greater participation by these institutions in the whole area of Māori language and uh, the promotion of Māori and cultural um, <clears throat> values, attitudes, uh, and education in general. Well, if the claim is successful, what do you see the being the implications of it? Well, if the claim is successful, that that means that um, government responds to the findings of the Waitangi Tribunal. Uh, I would see that uh, much more funding in the area of Māori education, uh, which in itself uh, is needed to support kohanga reo, uh, because kohanga reo, I think, is, is uh, an area which uh, is perhaps the very heart of Māori education for the future. But it's going to require funding, uh, lots of funding, in order to support the kohangaleo programs for the future. Apart from education, what are the other implications of your claim? Uh, apart from education, uh, there is, of course, broadcasting, which has been very much in the news and always in the news, and uh, we are always looking towards a greater in presentation, a wider presentation of Māori language content. Um, at the present moment, there isn't a great deal uh, on radio. There isn't a great deal on television. Um, for instance, 10 minutes on Kāriere each day 
isn't very much. I mean, if you miss your bus when you go home for tea, you're going to miss it. Uh, and sadly, like the other news items, it comes on again later in the evening. So there is an opportunity uh, for the normal news to be uh, caught at some stage of the evening. Well, if you achieve what you want, then what difference is it going to make in our courts and our local authorities <clears throat> in Parliament itself? Oh, I think it's going to make a big difference because what's going to happen is that many people are going to be employed with the expertise in Maori language. Translators, uh, for instance, within the Justice Department, there's going to be a tremendous need for translators in their various offices around the country. And so uh, I think if it uh, affects employment of Maori people, then I think it's, uh, it's doing a tremendous amount towards the, the, the status of people being employed with an expertise of Maori language. It means that Maori language can be seen to be alive and very much a part of the overall administration uh, within government departments um, <clears throat> in the area of reporting, reporting of news. Uh, I think there's going to be a, a greater use of Maori uh, within newspapers, uh, within news items. I mean, why, why don't we discuss this in Maori? Uh, you see, I mean, uh, I can... We can conduct this interview in English, and that will satisfy those who speak English, and of course, some of those who speak Maori. But if we were to conduct this interview in Maori, I'm sure it would uh, would satisfy and appeal to many Maori people and Pakeha people out in the community. Where do you see this sort of change ending? Is there an end? Or is there, a, is there a state where it's changed enough where you'll be happy? No, I don't see any end. I just see continual development in all sorts of areas so that ultimately we can be truly bi bilingual in all areas of our involvement so that uh, I, I foresee the future where... Um, we can all speak Maori and we can all speak English. And once we have achieved that, then I'm sure we can also readily switch to speaking uh, one of the other Pacific Island languages very easily, uh, like Samoan, like Rarotonga, Tahiti, because we're all part of the same family of languages and thereby broaden our links and not only broaden but to to further consolidate our links with the other Pacific Islands. And so I don't see any ending whatsoever in the, the development of Maori language except a continual overall uh, development throughout the New Zealand Bicultural Society. You talked before about employment and how translators at court, for instance, would provide job opportunities, but how many people are there who would wish to speak Māori in court that would need the services of a translator? 
I don't think it's a matter of how many would want to. I think it's a matter of recognizing that the culture exists and that it must uh, be available, the facilities must be recognized through all areas of government administration. Uh, for instance, in Parliament, uh, why shouldn't we speak Māori in Parliament? I mean, if we were to go to a place like France or uh, Russia or any other part of the country, the world, uh, they would conduct their, um, their, uh, <clears throat> all their discussions in, in the language of that country. Uh, certainly there are official languages in some countries, but there are also recognition and provisions for translators of other languages. Uh, some countries that speak three languages, uh, some have four languages and cope with them without any great difficulty. So why should we have too much trouble trying to cope with two languages? It's not very much to ask for. But I think it's to recognize the rights of the indigenous language and the indigenous culture because I believe it's related to the attitude of everyone in the country, in the land, about the place of language and the importance of that language to a person's well-being and overall uh, social involvement. And so if Māori is not <clears throat> seen to be of any relevance or of any importance or has no status, then this affects the attitudes within education, uh, within developing children and the early attitudes and values within the community. What difference will a successful claim make to the average Pākehā New Zealander, the average, the average Māori New Zealander? Well, um, I, I would like to think that it offers an opportunity for the average Māori or the average Pākehā to participate in, in their, their culture because it is part of overall New Zealand society, that it is in fact first and foremost for Māoris. But because we believe and we expound the philosophy of a bicultural society or even a multicultural society, and therefore <clears throat> it must affect the average person in such a way that the opportunity to participate and share within another cultural context is, uh, is of benefit socially, mentally, intellectually and culturally. Tēnā kōrua, Dr. Huirangi Waikere Puru talking to Carol Greensmith about why the Māori language should be made an official language in New Zealand. That recording was from 1984.
If you'd like to listen again to our podcast, you can find it at radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. Haneira a Jamie McCaskill with this week's Fakatoki. Ma fero ma pango kauti aite mahi. With red and black, the work will be complete. The colours mentioned in this fakatoki refer to the traditional kofaifai patterns on the inside of the meeting houses, and that they all interconnect. Um, how this fakatoki relates to me is um, the kopapa of my production company, Tikapa Productions, is about bringing in uh, my friends and uh, working together. Uh, to make the best product possible and to really get the work done to a very high quality. Kia ora, Jamie McCaskill. As daylight savings kicked off this past week, the days are getting longer and sunnier times are no doubt ahead of us. Many Māori are hitting the pavement or gym in preparation for Iron Māori in Napier, in early November, no reira, mena kukwetera, if that's you, kia kaha, kia maia. He mihi ki ngā kai kōriro i tēnei wiki, ka tuku te mihi ki ngā kai mahi rorohiko. Hoki mai hei te rātapu e heke mai nei, mauri ora.